1: Listener discretion is advised.
2: In this week's episode, a judge orders that Lori Vallow will not face the death penalty for the alleged doomsday murders of her son and daughter, as well as a surprising defense strategy in a case of a woman charged with the death of her boyfriend after he suffocated in a suitcase while she watched. But first, breaking news as the son of convicted killer Alex Murdoch has publicly denied any involvement in the 2015 death of a teen boy, which authorities are now investigating as a murder. Today, we are joined by Peter Tragos, a civil attorney focusing on victims of wrongful death in addition to his criminal defense practice. Peter is also a legal commentator and host of the Lawyer You Know podcast on YouTube. Peter, welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, Before we jump in, uh, could you tell us a little bit about your background and your current practice for listeners?
1: Sure. Yeah, I I grew up in a family with a dad as a lawyer. My dad is a criminal defense attorney. He was a state and federal prosecutor, uh, basically all criminal law. That's what I thought I wanted to do when I go to law school, and I still do some of it and did when I started. But I fell in love with representing injured victims. We focus on catastrophic injuries, wrongful death, car accidents, trip and fall cases, anybody. That's been injured when they weren't doing anything wrong, but someone else's mistake, negligence, or actions caused them some harm or death in their family. And we fight hard for them and realize how it can be such a catastrophic loss and effect on somebody. So that's really what we focus on. We do a lot of trial work, which is what kind of drew me in and led me to start talking about these trials that are now being filmed and streamed and such easy access to the public, which I think is really important for them to help understand what this process is like if it happens to you or a loved one, so it can be less daunting when you go into that courtroom. Um, and I think that, as you know, I'm sure a lot of people text you and ask you questions when cases are going on. A lot of people don't necessarily lawyer, uh, know a lawyer, which is where I came up with the Know, the Lawyer You Know um, slogan or name to our channel. I wanted to be a resource for people that might not know a lawyer within their circle of friends or group of people that they know. And we could just be that resource for them to try to Offer them some answers or some explanations as to why things happen the way that they do.
2: Fantastic. I like that. The the lawyer, you know, well, we are going to call upon your vast uh, (laughs) trial experience in in these cases. I know that you follow these closely on your podcast uh, yourself, so let's jump right in. First, we go to Hampton County, South Carolina. Uh, where just a couple of weeks after Alex Murdoch was convicted of the murder of his wife and youngest son, the eldest son is publicly denying his involvement in the 2015 death of 18. Buster Murdoch has not been officially linked to the death of 19-year-old Stephen Smith. However, news outlets and a Netflix documentary, The Murdoch Murders, have suggested that the pair attended high school together and may have had a relationship. Stephen Smith was found dead in Hampton County, his body was located on a county road about 15 miles from the Murdoch home. Smith, who was openly gay, had allegedly died in a hit and run, but many in the community found the circumstances suspect. This is the interesting um, evidence surrounding it here, Peter. Reportedly, Smith's loosely fitting shoes were still on when his body was found. He didn't appear to have any road rash, and there was no evidence of tire tracks or broken material near where his body was discovered, all highly irregular findings in a hit-and-run death. Smith's mother, Sandy Smith, has crowdfunded a an independent medical examiner to take a look at the case, and his body will reportedly be exhumed. Buster Murdoch is publicly pleading with the media to keep his name out of the investigation. He has issued a statement saying, These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false, adding I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death, and my heart goes out to the Smith family. In the latest development, authorities have announced through the Smith family attorney that the case is now being investigated as a murder peter jump right in what are your thoughts on how this investigation seems to be developing and and especially how quickly seem things seem to be advancing recently
1: so i mean with all the attention things are going to move quicker right and with money you can sometimes grease the wheels and now both of those things are happening in this case at the same time all the attention on everything surrounding the murdoch family And the uh, GoFundMe or whatever it was that she set up had a $15,000 goal. It's over $70,000 that have been donated. These attorneys that she has are the same attorneys that represent other victims of the Murdoch family. Uh, Many of the viewers of this show, I'm sure, met the Satterfield children, Gloria Satterfield, the uh, housekeeper of the Murdoch family. The Bland Richter law firm represents them. And now they represent Stephen Smith's family. So this is a law firm that knows the Murdoch family very well. They know how to get past certain obstacles that may be in place, and they are not afraid to take them on. However, at this point, they are saying all the right things and not putting Buster Murdoch in the middle of this investigation, not accusing him, not blaming him, as they are giving interviews on different shows. They have not, to this point, said that it was Buster Murdoch that had any involvement in it.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
2: Yeah, and you're right. Very smart. They're being very careful about it because he hasn't been named. You know, they got to worry about defamation and libel and everything else, but I want to point out some things and get your thoughts on this. One, apparently at the time of uh, Stephen Smith's death, Alex Murdoch uh, reportedly reached out to the family. The Smith case was, quote-unquote, reopened. This case had been closed. It had been considered a hit-and-run and closed for several years. It was, quote-unquote, reopened by SLED, the South Carolina law enforcement, at after the time of Alex Murdoch's arrest for the murder of his wife and child. So those are the coincidences there. And then it's now declared a murder. And we'll talk about how that happens. But they're now investigating it no longer as a hit and run, but an accidental death, but as a murder within weeks of Alex Murdoch being convicted of murder. So it just seems like there's this intertwined timeline between the Murdochs and the death of Stephen Smith. What do you think?
1: No doubt about it. I mean, the the timing is not coincidental. This case is eight years old. If they really felt like they had evidence that this was a homicide four years ago they would have reopened the case but with all the attention and the money coming behind the murdoch and on the the wings of the murdoch case now that's why this case is getting reopened no doubt about it it's so difficult to think of what they're going to find with a body that is eight years old with testimony that's eight years old with witnesses that may be eight years old with evidence that may be eight years old it just seems really tough to try to prove a case like this at this point but they're going to try because they want justice for Stephen Smith and his family, and I agree with that.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here's something that's curious to me, and I hope you could explain this to to listeners. Um, you know, we all understand that we, there's there's a difference between cause and manner of death. So cause of death is, in this case, you know, some sort of blunt force trauma, uh, you know, about his body and head caused him to die. Manner of death is what a a medical examiner might conclude based upon that evidence was this a accidental death was this a suicide or was this a homicide and so now they're saying this has gone from what they've considered an accidental manner of death to a homicide they're investigating it as a murder meaning believing that somebody did this on purpose my question is what changed in all that time they haven't exhumed the body yet so they haven't performed another autopsy so i'm I'm assuming they're going off of the old evidence the old autopsy the old reports, what, what, and I know I'm asking you to kind of do a little, uh, you know, guesswork here, but what do you think could have changed in the meantime for them to have made this big change in the, the way they've used a, this investigation?
1: So some of the evidence you pointed out, I think, can point to the fact that maybe he was killed somewhere else and taken to the spot where he eventually laid to rest. He had a working cell phone, did not call any family members, didn't call his twin sister if his car, quote unquote, broke down. Um, which is kind of how the story went when it was ruled an accidental death. And when you talk about it being ruled a homicide, now you can still have a homicide by vehicle. So the way that he died or what caused him to die could still be a motor vehicle. Like you said, blunt force trauma, some kind of crash, but it could have been intentional. We don't know that. Or many people, and we've dealt with a lot of death cases where pedestrians are hit by cars. And many times it's not the impact with the car that Um, causes the death, but the impact with the ground or the head with the street. So it could have been, you know, blunt force trauma to the head that they ruled as part of a pedestrian accident being hit by a car and then landing on the street where now maybe there's something to indicate or there will be something to indicate or they will be looking at if it was some kind of tool or weapon or something used for the blunt force trauma at the head. But it would seem at this point the only thing that could change this investigation without another autopsy would be the evidence you mentioned off the top that would indicate the body was killed somewhere else and moved, which would then rule it a homicide.
2: Yeah. This is purely speculation, uh, what I'm about to say here. But my my thoughts were too, because because they're not, the law enforcement's not being entirely forthcoming about any kind of developments. They're just saying, hey, we've, we're, we're taking another look and we're looking at this as a homicide. My thoughts are, The Murdoch family is no longer the dynasty and has control over that low country that they once did. Murdoch, Alex Murdoch, is now locked away. I'm wondering, are witnesses who were perhaps reluctant to speak way back when, when this death first occurred, are people perhaps more... um, Uh, feeling free to speak and are people perhaps coming forward again this is speculation but to me that would be a significant development that would explain one this kind of recent activity and two they're now changing of the way that they view this case what do you think
1: i mean witnesses and law enforcement both look at the murdoch family very differently now than they did eight years ago so i think that's very plausible and i think that's the type of thing that would turn around an eight-year-old case
2: absolutely Uh, last point on this before we move on Um, we're we're seeing this a lot Uh, we're seeing where podcasts have played roles in cases and investigations and bringing to life old cases Uh, we saw that with Kristen Smart a a podcast had a lot to do with why that case was uh, had another look taken at it and now it led to a conviction this case has had a lot of attention as well especially this Netflix documentary which talked a lot about the death of Stephen Smith what do you think that played a role? Do you think stuff like that should play a role? Is this good that we're starting to see this trend?
1: So, so as with most things in life and in our world, right, I th- see a lot of positives and negatives to the media attention, the podcast, YouTube, whatever it is where people are, are talking about these things. There's a lot of positive. We understand the system. We can help get a lot more potential witnesses and a lot more evidence that may not have come forward in the past without the technology. Um, And things like media attention like we have today, a lot of justice has been served by media attention. But then we see the flip side where we see people get crucified in the media. People get maybe canceled too quickly or inappropriately. We see wrongful accusations um, and very direct and strong accusations that just happen to be absolutely wrong and could potentially uh, ruin people's lives. We've seen people who are accused of crime get convicted in the court of public opinion before in a court of law, which is the exact opposite of how it's supposed to be in our free country. And we're also seeing um, the the influx of cameras and recording audio and and, uh, video equipment in the courtroom, like trials like Johnny Depp um, and other high profile trials that we're able to watch together and discuss, but people take it too far and they abuse a good thing. And now courts are reacting and multiple courts like this Lori Vallow, Chad Daybell case we're gonna get to, had cameras and microphones in the courtroom and the judge removed them. And there are other trials where lawyers are filing motions to remove cameras. The Gwyneth Paltrow trial that's going on right now, they have a court order that cameras cannot be pointed directly at Gwyneth Paltrow because people get a little bloodthirsty and they want their uh, money shot and they want to look directly at every single facial expression, either a celebrity or a criminal defendant makes. And we are moving too far into the sensational, sensationalization. What is that? What is, what is that word I'm looking for Um, as opposed to just watching a trial as the public. And so I do think there are positive and negative elements to all of this.
2: Yeah, Excellent points. All excellent points. Well, this case uh, seems to have a, a media fever that doesn't seem to be going away. So we will continue to watch it and the developments on the investigation of Stephen Smith's death. Let's move on to the case you alluded to out of Boise, Idaho, as the trial for alleged doomsday killer Lori Vallow draws near, a judge has ruled that Vallow will not face the possibility of capital punishment. The ruling comes from Judge Stephen Boyce after prosecutors announced back in May of 2022 that they would seek the death penalty, noting that the murders were particularly heinous and exhibited, pardon me, utter disregard for human life. Vallow, along with her latest husband, Chad Daybell, stand accused of the murders of Lori's children aged 7 and 16, as well as the killing of Chad's late wife, Tammy Daybell. Lori's children were missing for several months before they were found buried on Chad Daybell's Idaho property. It is believed that the couple shared extremist beliefs based on apocalyptic novels, authored by Chad, which loosely referenced aspects of Mormon ideology. In their motion to dismiss the death penalty, Valo's defense cited Lori's documented mental illness and the prejudicial effects of extensive media coverage that you alluded to on potential jurors. Valo's defense also argued that there were discovery violations committed by the prosecution and that the state of Idaho itself and this is interesting, was unable to execute death row inmates due to a lack of the necessary chemicals. To that end, Idaho recently passed legislation to reinstitute the firing squad in execution if execution drugs are not available. While Valo has gone through multiple hospitalizations and attempts to restore her competency, her trial now has a start date of April 3rd, barring any further setbacks. Peter, does this ruling surprise you? Um, you know, here, putting aside where, wherever your politics fall on the death penalty exe- itself, here we have an example of one of the more heinous types of murders you can think of. Two innocent children killed at the hands of their own mother, according to the allegations. And the judge takes the decision to pursue death out of the hands of jurors. What, what are your thoughts on this?
1: So it surprises me to the extent that in the beginning of the case, the judge was pretty hard line saying, I'm not going to sever these two cases between Lori and Chad. That's been a big discussion throughout multiple times. Her husband has asked to sever the cases. Judge kept saying no. Um, he continued pushing this case along, allowing the death penalty, kind of giving the state everything they asked for based on the fact that the charges were heinous and showed utter disregard of human life. Um, however, the the tone has kind of changed. Uh, And it's because of, I think, some of these discovery violations, the speedy trial issues. Lori Vallow demanded a speedy trial. Chad Daybell continues to ask for continuances. So he was forced to sever the trials in the interest of justice. And I think because of that, because of those issues, because of the mental health issues, I think he made the right call by taking the death penalty off the table. As difficult as that is to hear from the victim's families um, and everybody that wants justice. There are a lot of things going on in Idaho right now, and you listed a lot of them. To where it all kind of points in the direction of let's get this case tried. Let's not waste any more time, any more resources um, on this case. Let's get it tried. Let's get it tried appropriately. Let's have if we get a conviction, let's have it protected from any appellate issues or major appellate issues. And we'll move forward without the death penalty.
2: Yeah. Peter, to, to that end, something I thought was a little curious in in the argument by the defense and the, was alluded to and picked up by the judge was this idea of the unavailability part of me of the drugs necessary to perform an execution and it it was almost like they said well their argument being well listen we're not we're not going to be able to follow through on this anyways because of the unavailability of these drugs so what what are we going through all of this for in my view and I want to hear your thoughts that to me doesn't seem like a very appropriate consideration that the idea is you know our, if we're going to have a death penalty, if it's going to be the ultimate punishment, put it in the hands of jurors to say what is what is the kind of behavior that is so unacceptable that that's where we're going to invoke this penalty, and that doesn't really have to do with the you know resources or or, or logistics of of getting that done afterwards, but it's about the the, the carrying out justice quote unquote at the time. Do you follow what I'm saying here? What are your thoughts on that?
1: So I absolutely think that it is a totality of the circumstances type of decision. I don't okay. think any of these individual arguments may have been enough to push it over the finish line. Um, and I agree with you that that alone does not seem like enough. But when you think about how much longer it is to to handle a death penalty case, just picking the jury, which the the lawyers in the Alec Murdoch case, they said that's why the prosecutors didn't go for the death penalty in that case, because we would have been able to individually question the jurors would have taken a lot more time and a lot more effort and a lot more funds from the state. Well, similarly here, if they were going to seek the death penalty, the jury selection process would have been much longer. Uh, secondarily, there would have been a penalty phase, which is basically a second trial. I don't know if you followed the Parkland shooter in South Florida.
2: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
0: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener, about the best health and fitness podcast shows Enjoy the show.
1: The Nicholas Cruz trial, that was just a penalty phase trial. And you saw how long it took and how excruciating it was. And then to add on top of that, there are serious mental health concerns with Lori Vallow in this case. And again, referencing Nicholas Cruz, it seemed very shocking in a case like Florida, where you have the death penalty, that a school shooting case under those circumstances would not end up with a jury deciding for the death penalty, but that's exactly what happened. And many people think it was based on the mental health issues. So Judge Boyce is considering all of this, all of the extra time and money, the lack of chemicals, um, the additional funds to have somebody on death row. And I think he just thought at this point with the mental health issues, maybe it's not worth going through all of this extra procedure for a death penalty case that Maybe he's looking at it and seemingly thinking this is just not the right case for the death penalty because of the mental health issues.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I guess a part of me still feels like this is up to the prosecution. They represent the people of the state of Idaho. They've decided this is the type of case that they should pursue this type of penalty and for the judge to kind of remove that even from the ability for the jurors to consider. But you make excellent points about all of the all of the things he did have to consider in coming to this decision. I want to I want to dovetail off of one point that you made there about her mental health. Idaho does not have an insanity defense, but do you think her mental health will play a role in this trial nonetheless and how do you see that playing out?
1: So I don't. I don't think it's going to play out in the guilt phase of the trial. That is what Lori Vallow's attorneys have filed in court documents, that they are not necessarily going to have some kind of mental health defense. They have not put on, and and they said that that was at the request of their client. So it seems like from reading some of the court documents that there are some medical professionals that think that she may not have the mens rea appropriate, the mental capacity to commit certain crimes based on her mental health issues, which still exist in Idaho, even though they don't have a you know, like Florida and not guilty by reason of insanity, but it seems like they are not going to make those arguments. And if they were, they would have to notify the prosecution to prepare accordingly.
2: Yeah. Well, and it's a, it's a risky strategy Too right, because in order to bring in that defense, you have to essentially say my client did it. So who knows exactly what defense they're actually going to bring? It could be, hey, this is all Chad had, nothing to do with me, and therefore the the mental defense doesn't really play a role. You have to kind of accept the fact that you did this in order to bring in that type of evidence. So we'll we'll see how this all plays out. It's a really horrible tragedy of a case, but it's also fascinating from a legal perspective. But let's move now to Orange County, Florida lawyers for sarah boone who's been charged with second degree murder for the 2020 death of her boyfriend have indicated they intend to use a battered spouse defense when her case goes to trial boone's boyfriend george torres jr was allegedly zipped inside of a suitcase for hours before suffocating According to police, Boone told investigators that she and Torres were playing a drunken game of hide-and-seek before she passed out in bed and later found Torres dead. However, authorities claim video evidence taken from Boone's phone contradicts her story. An affidavit released in the case claimed that Boone was filming the suitcase as her late partner screamed that he couldn't breathe. Allegedly, Boone can be heard laughing on the video and reportedly saying, That's what I feel like when you cheat on me. We have some of that footage. Um, It is disturbing, and we will play some of that for you now. For everything you've done to me. Sarah. For everything you've done to me. Sarah.
0: Fuck you. Sarah. (laughs) Fuck you. Sarah. Stupid.
1: Sarah. That's my name, don't wear it up. Sarah, I can't fucking breathe, babe. Seriously. Yeah, that's when you do when you choke me, Sarah. Sarah, Sarah, I can't breathe, babe. That's on you. Sarah, I can't breathe. <laughs> it's on you. Sarah. Sarah, I can't. I can't
0: breathe, babe.
1: Oh, that's what Sarah. I feel like when you chew on
2: me. Sarah. That is chilling stuff, Peter. Um, while the state of Florida does recognize battered spouse syndrome that defense is typically applied to female victims of spousal abuse in order for boone's defense to prove their theory they would have to determine a uh, demonstrate pardon me to a jury that the abuse she suffered was chronic and ongoing a pre-trial conference for the case is set for march 28th with a possible trial beginning the week of april 10th uh peter for listeners um could you explain how does this defense work this this um battered spouse or or uh, battered woman syndrome defense. How does that play out?
1: It's not a ton different from self-defense, but it's in the context of uh, intimate partner violence, which a lot of people learned about in the Johnny Depp case or domestic violence, where you have a relationship where there is an abuser. And like you said, it's chronic and ongoing. And to put it in this context, Sarah Boone would have had to felt like they were playing a game. She zipped him in there. He's obviously getting mad. And now she just kind of snaps and thinks, If I let him out, he is going to abuse me like he always does so badly, maybe even to the to the level of death. So I don't know what to do. I freak out. I go upstairs. I pass out. I do nothing. And it's based on the fact that there was ongoing and chronic abuse so severely that it may have even caused her death in this um, situation. And that's why she didn't let him out.
2: That's an interesting way of, of arguing it. I hadn't thought about it that way. Um yeah, that per- perhaps she felt, you know, the argument being, I'm not saying I buy it, but the argument being that in that moment she was just frozen because it's the first time she's been free from his abuse. But again, they're going to they're going to really have to show a strong track record of abu- abuse to explain what to me looks like a torture. It looks like a, a, a the torture of of a person resulting in their slow suffocating to death. Is all of this smoke and mirrors when it comes to that video? I mean, is that video just really going to be what this case is all about?
1: That video is going to be tough. Her statements made um, to police are going to be tough. She went through hours of interrogation, made all sorts of admissions and said things that weren't necessarily going to line up with what the evidence that they were going to find later was. But I think the biggest issue in this case is you're right. They are going to have to prove some serious abuse and a history of that. And I think that they'll be able to. However, it goes both ways. Both of the individuals in this situation, the defendant and the victim, have both um, been at least accused of domestic violence, had law enforcement show up where they were the aggressor or they were the abuser. It is not a one way type of abuse situation. in this relationship, as documented by prior police calls and um, court records, So they're going to have to deal with that and they're going to have to deal with it going both ways. and They're going to have to deal with why didn't you just call somebody? Why didn't you call the cops? Her ex-husband and the father of her child showed up the next morning when police were there. Why didn't you call him to come and protect you and make sure this didn't happen or whatever it may be when you let George out? Why did you make the decision to leave him in there and what did you think was going to happen? I think is a, a very important question if she takes the stand.
2: Yeah. Talk to you mentioned the statements she made to police. Talk to us a little bit more more about that and why you think those are going to be problematic for her.
1: So she was really inconsistent in those statements. Um, One minute, everything was so great. They had such a great relationship. The next minute, uh, George was abusive and she was scared of what he was going to do. And she was always trying to help him. And he was always so negative. Um, Don't tell his family because they think she's the devil. It's like, why do they think that? Uh, She said that they were not drunk. And then if you listen to the video, some people have said it sounds like maybe she's slurring some of her speech. Um, she said it was, you know, a joke and they were just playing hide and seek and everything was great and they were happy with each other. You watch those videos. It does not seem like she's very happy. It definitely doesn't seem like he's having a good time. Um, and she does admit zipping him into the suitcase. She does admit that to law enforcement.
2: No. Yeah. I'll tell you. To me, that video and and just the idea of a person slowly suffocating to death while they're trapped inside of a confined space like that, that is so nightmarish and horrific that to me, the jurors see that and they start to imagine what that is like. I, I cannot see them really tuning into much more of what the defense has to see, say in this case. But we will continue to watch it It, again another tragedy that's very fascinating from a legal point of view but that is all we have for this week peter thank you so much for coming on
1: this will conclude the episode thanks for tuning in if you like what you hear please leave a comment and subscribe thank you